All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Hello and welcome to Hysteria. I'm Erin Ryan. Alyssa Mastromonico is feeling under the weather, so she's out for the week. But before we get to the show, I just wanted to say to all the people out there who are nervous about a federal judge striking down the mask mandate on mass transit, I see you, I understand your fear, and I just want you to know that I will always support your right to make bitchy faces at strangers from the privacy of your own mask because that's what I will be doing. If you want to wear a mask and make stink faces in the airport, that is your right as an American. I support you. I'm there with you. This week, I'm joined by Kim Kelly, Michigan State Senator Mallory McMorrow, and Hot Take host Mary Anise Hegler and Amy Westervelt to tackle the following questions. What can today's labor movement learn from the history of the labor movement? What happens when you mess with the wrong Michigan mom? And how did it become our responsibility as consumers to clean up oil companies' messes? All this and more right now. So today, as you all know, Alyssa is out sick. We do have proof of life. She's doing okay. She's texting her fingers work. Uh, Hopefully we can get her back next week. But we have got somebody great here to kind of help quarterback news with me this week. She is a labor journalist, and her book, Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor, is out 426. You know her, you love her, you've heard her on here before. Kim Kelly, welcome to Hysteria. Thanks for having me back. What an intro. I love that. <laughs> oh, well, I it was off the cuff. It was an off the cuff intro. I am so excited you're here. Uh, we love you here. We love the work you do. We love what you're covering. But you know what's funny? Because in, you know, your previous writing life, and I guess like kind of currently, you're also like, you, you've you written about like metal and music and stuff. And so like, when I think about your beat, I think like monsters of labor, like. <laughs> yes, I should have worn my Gravedigger shirt. <laughs> I would 100% be supporting that. Um, so I want to start by like just reading a little bit from your your book and just like seeing your reaction to it because um I feel like it it really I don't know if it's on purpose I don't know if you're a you know a news witch um but this is in the prologue uh as I write this in my bedroom in South Philly it's been only a few months since the Amazon vote the wounds are still fresh but the impact of what those workers accomplished has already reverberated throughout the labor movement and set an incredibly important precedent Someone had to be the first, and now the next group of workers who decide to take a moonshot of their own and go toe-to-toe with a giant will get even closer. Kim, how did you know? <laughs> I uh, wow. I demand answers. How, how did, That's very prescient. 
I mean, that's how it's always been though, right? Someone's always got to be the first and then someone's inevitably going to be the second and the third and they're going to keep pushing further and further. That's how we get anywhere, you know, mm-hmm. like someone formed the first labor union, someone went on the first factory strike. In America, it was a bunch of women in Rhode Island in 1824. Shout out to Pawtucket. Like, there's always a precedent somewhere. And if there isn't one, someone has to make it there be one. Like, someone has to do it. And Mm -hmm. wow. And I just knew that what was happening in Bessemer, like, that wasn't isolated. That wasn't going to end there. And Mm -hmm. obviously, I guess I was right. (laughs) So, yeah, let's talk about, you know, the big headline from Staten Island in Amazon. Let's talk a little bit about Starbucks. But one thing I want to touch on first, and you do like kind of get into this in the book, um, you talk about how the first labor strike in America was a bunch of women. And uh, another thing, you know, with the with the Amazon unionization in Staten Island, the the man leading the effort, Chris Smalls, was was like completely talked down to and overlooked and thought that, you know, he was not formidable. Like, what role does underestimating, uh, like, disempowered people have in American labor? Also, taking a look at, like, just the chapter titles in the book, um, you know, there, it's like the 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 girls from, you know, the factory. It's like the Jewish ladies from... There, it seems like they're the people that kind of are the Davids have, like... They're members of groups that are disenfranchised and that are they're able to kind of jujitsu their disenfranchisement to like surprise the powerful. It's pretty incredible, right? I mean, yeah. if you're just constantly underestimated and written off and devalued, you're gonna know just how high the odds are stacked against you and you're gonna fight even harder. And in a lot of you know, a lot of instances, like you can use the boss's ignorance or racism, misogyny against him. I mean, that's what they're able to do in Amazon with Chris Smalls, Derek Palmer all the Amazon workers who organized that committee. They were young, black and brown, multi-gender, multilingual, like multi-generational, but predominantly young working class people from Staten Island, from Jersey that were like, okay, they think we're this, they think we're that. We're going to show them what we're made of. And there's so many precedents throughout history, whether we're talking about factory workers in the 1800s or, you know, Latino and Asian farm workers in the 60s or like black workers organizing the post-reconstruction era, or even right now when like some of the most invigorating efforts are being led by young, like young marginalized people. Because like, if you're in a more vulnerable position, you know that it's going to be tougher and you know, you're going to have to work with that. I mean, it makes me think of this, <laughs> bear with me. It's, it's a nerdy reference, but like in 1946, when there's this massive uh, sugar plantation worker strike in Hawaii, the way they, those workers won, by the way, but they took on another type of Goliath. These like, these uh, sort of agricultural oligarchs, white and your American and European men who owned like massive swaths of the islands and paid uh, Asian and Latino and all kinds of immigrants from different nations, basically like poverty wages to work long, hot hours in the sugarcane fields. And they kept those workers separated They had Chinese workers in one camp, Filipino workers in another. They paid them differently. They treated them differently. They tried to keep them separate because they didn't want them to, you know, talk to each other and try to communicate and realize how much they had in common. And the way they won that strike was by reaching across those artificial divides and building community with one another, 
with engaging translators to make sure everyone could be heard, showing how much they respect and appreciate each other's labor. And they built this kind of unbreakable coalition. And like, that's how you win. That's how you win. Like, if the boss thinks that you ain't worth shit, just show them how dangerous you really are. I mean, Mother Jones, this, like, this another famous labor leader from back in the day, she was at the height of her influence. She was a, a small elderly Irish woman who dressed in black and was about probably up to my shoulder. And people were terrified of her because they, she, they underestimated her. They thought she was just someone's grandma who gotten lost. And then she showed up and started, you know, screaming about death to capitalism. Like you, you never know who you're dealing with until you force them to show you. And that's what they did in, in Staten Island. Like, and thank God we have like such a cool union leader to look up to now because I'm sick yeah. of dudes in suits. <laughs> well, walk me through, you know, as a labor reporter and someone who is following along the story, probably more closely than a lot of people were. Walk me through that day for you and walk me through that the story of that day. So I, I I definitely didn't follow it as closely as some reporters like, you know, Lauren Gurley and Louis Leon. Like there are people that are on the ground following this really closely. I was more focused on the efforts in Alabama and Bessemer. That's where I started and where I started following, you know, Amazon organizing truly. But even just seeing that kind of from that perspective of knowing so much about what happened in Alabama and Bessemer and just seeing what was able to be accomplished in Staten Island and seeing them when I don't think I've ever seen Labor Twitter so excited. And yes, Labor Twitter exists. We are very nerdy, but we are very passionate. And that was like, it was just an explosion of joy because this, like we said before, it's they're the first, but they're not going to be the last. Like this is a shot across the bow. I think I saw an interview with Chris Smalls uh, pretty soon after this. Said he had heard from workers in about a hundred different facilities who had reached out. Like this doesn't end here. And just seeing us, like us as workers, us as the working class in this country, to see us win, like notch a big win against this, this sort of dystopian evil railroad baron from the future that we're all forced to live with, like that ruled. That felt really good. And I can only imagine how much joy the workers who actually organized and did that work they must have felt that day. Like we saw them popping champagne. We saw them crying. Like I hope that they we're just able to bask in that feeling and can hold on to that forever. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, obviously uh, Amazon is probably going to try to fight this effort and they want to stop it from spreading. Of like, course. What is, what's, what's next in this, spe this specific story, in this specific company? So they basically they do what any group of workers who've won a union via NLRB election does. They, they need to set bargaining dates to sit down with the company and start working on the contract. And this is where it's going to get kind of dicey because Amazon clearly does not want to sit down with them and does not want them to get a contract. So they're going to use whatever legal and sort of legal means they have to delay that process, to avoid having to meet with them, to avoid having to acknowledge them. I think one of the, the first statements I saw from Amazon World that came out after the victory news was announced was they're, they're like trying to go after the NLRB. They're like mad at this administrative body and the government. They're like, this is you're you did. This isn't this is a you did something wrong. Like you did something like fucked up. And it's like, no, honey, like the workers just voted and they didn't do what you wanted them to do. Like you're just going to have to get over it. And it's it's going to be ugly. It's going to be really hard. Like, I'm sure they know what they're up against because they've already done all this organizing and they've made connections within the, uh, I guess, the more established whatever labor movement, you'd say. 
And thankfully, a lot of like bigger units have been pledging resources and support, which is going to be very come in very handy for this independent union that's just been formed. So I'm really interested to see what happens because like they have another precedent to set. They have to prove that you can force Amazon to the bargaining table and you can get something worthwhile. And that is honestly probably going to be a much harder fight. But I mean, they got this far, so I have full faith that they'll get, you know, they'll they'll get the next win too. Yeah, write a new, like, pretend like you're writing another book and, like, write the intro and be like, <laughs> well, as I'm sitting here in my bedroom in South Philly, the Amazon vote just took place. And I want to hear, like, what your no- next prognostication is because that that segment that I read is just, like, so Russian. I, can't, I couldn't believe it. I was like... <laughs> Of course, Kim's right. Um, let's talk a little bit about Starbucks. Um, Starbucks is another group of, um, it, there's some rumblings about unionization of Starbucks workers. Can you tell me what that looks like? And, you know, if there are parallels between Starbucks's organizing and the organizing that we saw from Amazon, and, you know, what are the implications of, of that? It is so exciting. Like it is, it is really swept like wildfire that the Starbucks Workers United movement, and it really is a movement. Like it, it began with a couple stores that went public, and people were like, "Oh, cool! All right, they're going to try to take on Starbucks." But then it spread so far and so fast. I think it's over two hundred stores have gone public, and a bunch of them have won. I've, I've lost count of how many uh, we're up to, but I think even yesterday in Virginia, like five stores won their, their uh, NLRB elections, like their union stores now, and they're popping up all over the country. And, you know, they, it's a little bit different from Amazon in that, you know, Starbucks Workers United, they're part of Workers United, which is part of SEIU, which is a bigger union, but the parent union or the international union, however you want to frame it, they have made what I think is a very wise decision and that they've provided the resources and sent out organizers where they're needed or wanted, but have mostly stayed hands off. I think they realize that this momentum is being driven by the workers themselves. Like it's a very worker-led effort. And I think that's why it's been so successful. Um, When I, I think a month or so ago, when the first Philly stores announced, I think we have four now. uh, I I did a piece for the nation. I interviewed some of the organizers. I remember asking them like, so how is this? Like, are you in touch with other folks around the city? How is this spreading? How do you keep in touch? And they're like, oh, we have group chats. We have signal threads. We have a Discord server. Like, we are very in touch. We're in dialogue with Starbucks's, Starbucks's all around the area. Like, this is, we're the first couple to go public and some places need a little bit more time. But this is, there's a lot going on beneath the surface. And so much of it is being propelled by this very old school and very, you know, impactful organizing tactic called talking to your coworkers, doing one-on-one conversations, finding out the issues in your shop and hearing grievances and finding common ground and, you know, convincing people or assuring people or giving people information about what unions are and hopefully getting to a point where everyone's kind of on the same page. Like it's the fact that these two big wins against these two giant corporations that a lot of people are familiar with. Most people recognize Amazon and or Starbucks the fact that these workers who are overwhelmingly like younger, more marginalized people are taking on these giants and they're winning. Like it is hard to understate the impact that that has had. And I think we'll continue to have because I mean, they we're just seeing more and more precedents popping up. Like you need a precedent. We love a precedent. And <laughs> these folks are, are really just well, not uh, raising the bar 
for for future organizing campaigns. Like there's a lot to be learned from what these workers are doing. And I really hope and I think that a lot of folks in the labor movement, whether inside or outside the traditional labor union structures, like I think they're all paying attention. If they're smart, they're paying attention. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, totally. Um, so I wanted to circle back, circle back. I'm like using corporate speak and <laughs> discussing labor, but I would like to talk a little bit more about the way that Starbucks workers are communicating with each other. And uh, because that reminded me of like reading a story about how Amazon was like, okay, well, this is how we're going to, we're going to fight unionization within like different warehouses. We're going to ban certain words from from company chat platforms. Um, So obviously there's like, you know, there's, there are easy ways to talk to your coworkers that don't involve you talking to them over company platforms or like Slack or places that your boss can see communication. Do you have some like just basic communication safety tips for workers who are trying to like organize and talk to each other, but not have it be something that's like monitored by their corporate or overlords? I mean, I always encourage people downloading Signal or other encrypted chat platforms. Um, Discord's a good one for, you know, for mobile or desktop, because that's kind of, that's harder for them to get into anyway. If you're really serious and really involved in talking to your coworkers on a daily basis, like get a burner phone, (laughs) like really just go off grid with it because surveillance is kind of Amazon's whole thing. They're very good at it. They are surveilling all of us all the time. So whatever you can do to get out from under the eye of Sauron is definitely a good move. And honestly, like good old fashioned phone trees and meetings, they work. They can go a long way. Like they can't follow you everywhere turn your phone off, put it in a fridge, meet up with some friends in a, in a room in someone's house. You're pretty good to go. That's like, that's how the anarchists do it. It'll, it'll work for Amazon workers too, as long as you just stay vigilant and uh, maybe come up with some code words. I mean, you can't say union, but no one said anything about onions. <laughs> I mean, it's like how on TikTok, there's words that people can't use that yeah. people use to get around it pretty easily, like La Dollar Bean for lesbian. Um, have you seen, have you seen that? Kim? No, I'm like, I don't understand TikTok, but I've seen like, I've seen some things like that where I'll be like, I don't know, mindlessly scrolling and I'll see someone talking and then I see the caption. Like, oh, oh, that's clever. Right, right, right. Well, it's, it's interesting because like Chinese artists have been doing that for a really long time too, to get around censorship in China, which I, I think is a super interesting thing, like punning. There's like a there's like a big punning culture in a lot of Chinese art that is trying to be subversive. Um, so it's like interesting to see American labor utilize tactics that people in like actual surveillance states and governments that are surveilling them use. I mean, it, <laughs> it makes me think uh, about Cockney, you know, that like very specific London dialect that arose within the criminal underworld because it was better to talk about what you were doing when nobody could tell what you were talking about. Like it's, (laughs) there's a lot of, humans are very good at getting around these kinds of rules. And I have Uh full faith that especially people who are as online as the folks involved in organizing at Amazon, or at least a lot of the organizers are like, maybe not everyone who works in the warehouse, but like you just need one really good sneaky friend to orchestrate (laughs) these things. Like I have a lot of (laughs) sneaky friends. I have a lot of signal threads. Like you can get around this shit. It just takes, it's just, it is really 
dystopian and creepy and unfortunate that these workers have to put extra effort in just to talk to their coworkers about things that are relevant to their work, which is protected under labor law. Like they are not doing anything wrong. This is Amazon acting like absolute freaks and trying to crush this effort because they're scared and they know it's going to spread and they know that eventually they're going to lose. And they are just grasping at whatever, like, just absolutely absurd, just just creepy nonsense they can because they're mm-hmm. scared. If they weren't so scared, they would just be trying to ignore it or act like it doesn't matter. Like, we know that they're terrified, and that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Totally. Let's pivot to talking about your book, which um, you're sort of in like the book fog right now, which is a, <laughs> a thing that I recognize from all my friends who have. Re- it's like the. It's a similar vibe to somebody who like just had a kid it's just like I you know what I've been in this fog all all (laughs) I'm doing is like bring like raising this baby how is the book being received like how are you how are you feeling about it your pub day and everything it's exciting people every interview I've done with people has been really nice um, I've gotten a couple of nice reviews. Like it's, it's people have been really, really sweet and have been sending me photos of the book on Twitter and on Instagram and like tagging me and stuff. And that just feels so good because I wrote it for the people. I wrote it for workers. I wrote it for people to like read on the bus or throw in their backpack on their way to a protest. Like that's the audience I was I was seeking. And it seems like that's the folks I'm reaching. And that is the best feeling in the world. And I'm I've got a bunch of like press stuff coming out. Like I've been doing all kinds of interviews and trying to sound like a smart adult person. And, you know, we'll see how well that goes. Um, It's kind of wild because I'm not an academic. I don't have formal training. I don't have, um, I come from, I guess, a pretty different world from a lot of people that write about history and get the opportunity to do so in like a trade book on like in this kind of platform. Like I'm very lucky and I'm just like, it's yeah, it's I'm like ugh. it's why I can't believe it's coming out this soon. I feel like it until I see it in a story and be like, y'all are joking. Like this isn't really happening. Like I didn't you're, you're pulling my leg. This is an elaborate, expensive prank. <laughs> I mean, it would be like kind of funny if it were in a show, like if I were watching it happen in the context of like a narrative show, it could be kind of funny. Um, but no, it's real. It's it's very real. I'm holding the book right now. Um, where should listeners purchase your book? How should listeners purchase your book? So right now, well, I'm not sure when this airs, but well, really just in general, but ideally I would love for you to buy it from a local bookstore or from bookshop.org or from IndieBound, like supporting independent booksellers and smaller mom and pop stores, like even used bookstores, like I like that's what I would prefer. You can also buy it from wherever the hell you want. Like it is very funny that Amazon rankings and Amazon matter so much for books because I <laughs> am very rude to Amazon in this book. So I don't think and I don't think the people that care about my work are going to be rushing off to Amazon, but it is available there just in case. Um, it's funny. I just or like one thing that is very thrilling to me is when people show me like little screenshots showing that they requested it from their local library. Like that's the Aww. best thing. Like knowing that my book is going to be in a library, that like libraries and books really changed the entire trajectory of my life. So I'm from like a very rural place. Like I'm not from like, like not, it's not a one room schoolhouse, but it's not very big. I didn't go to middle school. Like the right. only really contact we had with the outside world when I was a kid was the bookmobile that came through town every Tuesday afternoon. And I would go in and get all my books and go home and read them. My mom gave me like a 20 book limit. Like I was that little weird kid. 
And libraries are, I like, I live close to the library here. I did so much of my research in the library in Philly. It's, it just feels really nice to know that some kid or some person could just be wandering through, like trying to print something and see my book cover and go, huh, what's that? That's cool. That looks like kind of weird and goth. And then they'll pick <laughs> it up and then maybe they'll learn something cool. Like it's very, very proletarian vibe, I guess. <laughs> That's really sweet, Tim. Um, okay, we are out of time for news. We got to take a break. Kim Kelly's book, Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor, is available anywhere you get books. Congrats, Kim. And thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by IQ Bar. Power up your life with superior brain and body nutrition products from IQ Bar. Their plant protein bars are the perfect low-carb breakfast. Their IQ Mix zero-sugar hydration drinks replenish electrolytes. And their IQ Joe mushroom coffees will keep you focused all day long. Start each day right with IQ Bar's brain and body boosting bars, hydration mixes, and mushroom coffees. Their ultimate sampler pack includes all three. IQ Bar empowers doers with superior brain and body nutrition. All their products are entirely free from gluten, dairy, soy, GMOs, and artificial sweeteners. And today, Hysteria listeners get an exclusive offer of 20% off plus free shipping. Just text HYSTERIA to 64000. One thing I love about IQ Bar is, first of all, right now it's really dry where I am. Oh, okay. It is hard for me to stay hydrated. I, I just like, I, I'll just be going through my day and I'll be like, why am I so like... Parched. I'm parched. I'm in a bad mood. I feel like I'm going to pass out. And it's, ah, you got to drink some water. You got to stay hydrated. I really like their IQ Mix Zero Sugar Hydration Drinks because it allows me to rehydrate myself at a time yeah. when I feel like the atmosphere is trying to take all my moisture away. Well, and sometimes you need more than just water. Sometimes you need more more than just water. I also love IQ bars because I love a portable breakfast. I love a grab-and-go breakfast. No dishes. Love something I can walk around holding and eating. I like something I can eat in my car without endangering the lives of me and every other motorist on the road. A breakfast burrito. <laughs> not Not the safest thing to eat behind the wheel. IQ bar, go ahead and do it. Good for you. Great ingredients. Helps you stay focused and alert throughout the day. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, and you don't have to dirty any dishes. Refuel smarter with IQ Bar's Ultimate Sampler Pack. That's seven IQ Bars, four IQ Mix sticks, and four IQ Joe sticks. And now our special podcast listeners get 20% off all IQ Bar products plus get free shipping. To get your 20% off, just text Hysteria to 64000. Get your discount. Text Hysteria to 64000. That's H-Y-S-T-E-R-I-A to 64000. Message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. And welcome back. You're listening to Hysteria. So yesterday I got a bunch of tweets pointing me in the direction of a speech from a state senator from Michigan named Mallory McMorrow. Mallory gave, I guess, I would say a pretty thorough dressing down to a colleague who accused her in a fundraising email of grooming children by supporting LGBTQ rights. And while Mallory wasn't having any of it, here's a clip. Thank you, Mr. President. 
I didn't expect to wake up yesterday to the news that the senator from the 22nd District had overnight accused me by name of grooming and sexualizing children in an email fundraising for herself. So I sat on it for a while wondering why me? And then I realized because I am the biggest threat to your hollow, hateful scheme. Because you can't claim that you are targeting marginalized kids in the name of, quote, parental rights if another parent is standing up to say no. So then what? Then you dehumanize and marginalize me. You say that I'm one of them. You say she's a groomer. She supports pedophilia. She wants children to believe that they were responsible for slavery and to feel bad about themselves because they're white. I want every child in this state to feel seen, heard, and supported, not marginalized and targeted because they are not straight, white, and Christian. We cannot let hateful people tell you otherwise to scapegoat and deflect from the fact that they are not doing anything to fix the real issues that impact people's lives. And I know that hate will only win if people like me stand by and let it happen. I am happy to say that we've got the woman, the myth, the legend, Mallory McMorrow in the flesh today. So welcome, Mallory. Thanks, Erin. Uh, friend of the pod. This feels like a longtime listener, first-time caller situation. Friend of the pod, indeed. Um, and also, you know, fellow Domer. I wanted to congratulate you on fellow on, Domer, know. fellow Gawker, RIP. And I know, yeah, I know, RIP. But it's also a zombie. It's yeah. it's it's just kind of lumbering through the world in its current state. <laughs> um, but we could talk about that more offline. Oh yeah, Mallory. Um, so yesterday, on Tuesday, I started seeing a bunch of people tweeting at me, like, get this lady on hysteria. This, like, check out this woman. Check out this state senator from Michigan. And it was a, like, almost five-minute-long clip of you issuing a dressing down for the ages. When you delivered this speech, um, tell me about what your mindset was and tell me about— whether you expected the reaction to be what it's been. Because you're at, like, over 100,000 likes. Like— Yeah, and over 10 million views, which is the entire— what? The entire state of Michigan, the population. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, yeah, walk, walk me through the conditions under which you felt compelled to make the speech and, and what's happened since. Yeah, I mean, so a little bit of background, uh, a— fundraising email was sent out by one of my colleagues accusing me by name of sexualizing and grooming children uh, and supporting pedophilia and believing that eight-year-olds are responsible for slavery. All of this absolute garbage nonsense. And they fucked with the wrong mom. Uh, <laughs> gonna say that. So, you know, for, for me, the... <laughs> I, w I was so disgusted when somebody told me about this email and I'm a mom to a one-year-old and just how hateful and vile it is for a mother to say that about another mother. Uh, and then sitting with it and trying to figure out why was she targeting me? I'm straight. I'm married. Uh, I went to Notre Dame. You know, it's, I'm not the typical target. 
Yeah, you're not the like boogeyman in the closet that Republicans now are trying to like point like, oh, it's like you're yes, you're you're definitely outside of the like Ron DeSantis scare tactic type archetype. Right. Well, and, and I wanted to respond to it directly because as I was thinking about it more, I am ti- I'm tired of Republicans, particularly this very hateful fringe of taking advantage of Christianity and religion as a tool to hate and marginalize people uh, and claiming to speak for white suburban moms, you know, claiming that that we all speak in one unified voice and that this is what we want. So, you know, I, I recognize that how I felt on Monday pales in comparison to probably how every trans kid feels waking up every single day and just trying to exist in the world. Uh, And it was unacceptable. So I I wanted to put a really strong rebuke together and say it directly to her face. Mm -hmm. Did you, could you see her face when you were giving the speech? I saw the back of her head because she refused to look at me. (gasps) Oh, so brave. (laughs) Yeah, right. Have you run into her in the hallway since? I mean, we sit in the same room uh, for a few hours out of the day, and she has not looked at me, talked to me, acknowledged that I exist uh, since issuing an email, but put out a statement today, finally, uh, saying that I'm not naive and that uh, I'm using this for my own fundraising reasons and just doubled down on on saying that while I'm busy fundraising, she is going to uh, continue to speak for Michigan parents. Okay, um, that's silly. Uh, tell me a little bit about the response that you got from your speech. Like, did you expect for it to blow up the way that it did? No, I, I did not expect it to blow up the way that it did. And, and I ran what I had written by, um, you know, a a few friends and and colleagues, particularly those in the LGBTQ community, because I wanted to make sure the tone was right. Uh, And and that I was expressing a message that hopefully said, hey, white ladies, get off our asses. We have to stand up against this. Uh, And the response has been overwhelming. Just Overwhelmed. I warned my staff, you know, to expect an influx of, of calls and emails, and we kind of braced for the worst. And it has been unbelievably moving and positive. Uh, I got a call this morning from, I, I picked up the phone in my office thinking it, it rang through to my office phone um, from one of my staff members, but somehow the call just got directly to me. Picked up and said hello, and this woman um, said that she... She is a right Christian woman from Texas and wanted to let Senator McMorrow know that she said everything that this woman wanted to say to her family and that she made her mama proud. And then I started crying and told her that I'm Senator McMorrow. And, and that has been the response from all around the country, from all around the state, all around the country is just this is where most people are, religious, Republican, Democratic, that we don't want to hate people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it lit up my friend group chat before, and I was like, I'm interviewing her today. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it's it was really exciting to to see. I think you tapped into something that a lot of people were thinking, like like you said. Um, now that you have like all of this attention, like from people that are outside of you know the the realm of Michigan, outside of your district, state senate district thirteen. Um, like, what are you working on 
on a broader sense as a elected representative? I mean, first of all, my my hope is that this helped particularly Democrats show that we we have to do both. I think there is a fear of stepping into social issues when we have to focus on the economy and pocketbook issues. And if we do one, then we're not doing the other. And, you know, constantly looking at Biden's approval ratings and what does polling mean for Democrats when it's bullshit. This is hatred. We have to call out hatred and then pivot and tell people that, frankly, Lana Tice is lying to you. And she is Mm -hmm. trying to make you so angry and hateful towards trans kids who just want to play soccer with their friends that you forget that she's not doing anything to help Mm -hmm. you and your problems. And if, you know, the the handful of trans kids who play sports in Michigan weren't allowed to play tomorrow, those problems would still be here and your life wouldn't be any better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I find that to be, it's an interesting distraction tactic from people who clearly don't have solutions. Uh, And if they do have solutions, they're not willing to implement them because they don't want to make the wrong people mad. Exactly. Yeah. Um, So what are some of your uh, priorities as as an elected official? And also, like, I, I don't want you to, like, necessarily show your whole hand here, but what are your aspirations? Like, you're young. You know, you were elected in January 2019. You've got a long career in politics ahead of you, if if that's what you choose. Like, you know, what's next? Yeah, I mean, so my priorities in Michigan, fundamentally, it's about what are we doing to retain and attract more people to the state. I'm not from Michigan originally. I, I moved here um, by choice because this place is unbelievably beautiful and diverse and we could afford to buy a house and... There is so much like hometown pride in this state that it's just, it's an amazing place to be. So I, um, I'm the Democratic Vice Chair for the Economic Development Committee and really trying to pivot our approach to economic development from giving huge tax incentives to companies to making sure that we are diverse and welcoming and we have the workforce that is going to make companies clamor to invest in Michigan. Um, and that also means protecting our water and environment. We have 20% of the world's fresh water supply in the Great Lakes. Uh, and it's it's all of these things to really just make this place better. And that means making it welcoming and showing the rest of the state and the world why I moved here in the first place. Mm-hmm. So governor, you're eventually going to run for governor. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, so, you know, I get that question and I'm up for re-election this year. If I get re-elected, that's the next five years of my life. I haven't even thought <laughs> into like what I'm doing next week. And my our daughter started walking and now she's running and I'm looking at my house like it's a death trap. And, like, oh and I gotta God. fix it. <laughs> I mean, my my little one is just starting to like think about crawling and yeah. I'm oh. like, oh no, what do yeah. I like what what is she gonna like? I have to look at everything, everything. like like, like my, I feel like my eyes are computers that are like trying to analyze, like, where could the baby hit the baby's head? You know, yeah. like, where could she? Everything Ugh. is a death trap. It's Everything terrifying. is a total death <laughs> trap. Um, so uh, I, I know that you didn't do this because of fundraising. You did this in response to a really like gross attempt at fundraising. Um, but I'm curious, can you share whether or not you've had like an uptick in fundraising inquiries of people interested in donating to you since you've given the speech? Yeah. Uh, so I'll be the first to say I haven't logged into our, our fundraising account, so I don't know the actual numbers. And I didn't actively fundraise off of this at all. So I didn't put out a link or a call or an email or anything. Uh, but people definitely found it. 
Uh, and I can pretty confidently say we've done more in two days than I did all of last year. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, I know that you didn't do this to fundraise, but I'm going to drop your URL, uh, mcmorrowformichigan.com, if you want to if you want to donate to Mallory McMorrow. Um, any final thoughts? Anything else you want to say? Like, what if— what advice do you have to people who are out there who have someone at work who does something egregious, like egregiously out of line, accusing them of being a groomer, accusing them of, you know, anything along the lines of what happened to you? What tips would you have for confronting that person? I mean, first of all, trolls want nothing but attention. So I was very intentional of waiting and responding when I had, A, gotten my thoughts together, you know, not kind of responding in the moment. Um, and responding in a way where, yes, it was to Lana, but it was also to a lot of other people to let them know that you are seen and supported for who you are, despite the fact that we have hateful monsters uh, serving in elected office. So for, for people at work, you know, if you work with a colleague, tell them to their face or tell them in front of your your colleagues because the, the thing that has been so rewarding about this is the majority of people who have responded to us have our back. And it is where most people are. And as long as you are doing what you know in your gut is right, people are going to back you up. Mm -hmm. That is great advice. Mallory, thanks so much for joining us. Come back again soon. Thanks, Aaron. Absolutely. All right. Take care. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. And welcome back. If you are listening to this on the day that it comes out, it is 421, which is the day after 420. And you know what that means. It's Earth Day Eve. Earth Day is <laughs> April 22nd. When I see 420, I think we are but two days from Earth Day, the most joyous <laughs> of holidays, biggest of celebrations. Uh, no, uh, Earth Day has become one of those holidays that is, uh, I would say, a more reflective day for me. Uh, it's not quite into Columbus Day territory where I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ, this fucking guy. But I'm getting mm -hmm. into this fucking guy territory with Earth Day. And there are no two people that I would like to have the conversation with about why Earth Day has its problems 
than these two women that I have joining me today. Mary Anise Hegler is a climate justice essayist whose work has been integral to getting the climate movement to understand climate change as a deeply emotional justice issue that intersects with every other justice issue. Mary also coined the term green trolling and is known for cyberbullying fossil fuel companies on Twitter. She's one half of the hot take hosts. Hello, Mary. Hello. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, what's your latest green troll? Who have you green trolled lately? Well, uh, as you said, today is 420. That means is the anniversary of the BP oil spill, the biggest oil spill in American history. Um, so I'm spending all day today trolling the living shit out of BP. So, oh. <laughs> what does that look like for you? Like, what what's the latest? Like, do you just are you just like <laughs> shut shut up, go away, you suck? Like, what no. what does it look like for you? Oh no, it's very involved today. <laughs> yeah, today is very involved. <laughs> Uh, thank you, Amy. Um, so, yeah, today, um, you know, we did this um, Fuck BP Day last year um, where we, you know, trolled all of their subsidiary accounts. You know, it's interesting because BP will not tweet on April 20th. Um, you will not find any of their accounts tweeting on April 20th because they know. They know. <laughs> and they know that we know <laughs> what mm-hmm. April 20th is. Um, and um, But this year, um, instead of tweeting at them, we decided to tweet as them. Um, so we created a new account, uh, BP These Nuts, um, and we are impersonating BP Global and tweeting about all of their greatest hits, from the oil spill to being the pioneering oil company in Russia, um, to drilling. I, I, one of my favorite things about BP is that their name stands for British Petroleum, but they've dug up their first oil in Iran because uh-huh. oil and colonialism go hand in hand. Right, Amy? Uh-huh. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'm going to bring in our, our second our second guest today. You're hearing her laugh and and <laughs> egg Mary on, which uh, I believe you can hear a lot of in in the Hot Take podcast. Amy Westervelt yes. <laughs> is the founder of the Critical Frequency Podcast Network. She is also an award winning investigative journalist who's contributed to the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Guardian, NPR, and many other outlets. And she is the other half of Hot Take. Amy. Welcome to Hysteria. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And us. Yeah. Um, so do you participate in green trolling or is Mary the ringleader? Like explain, like what, what's your favorite green troll that you've participated in? Mary's definitely the ringleader. I, my, I, I tend to be in the background being like, here's more fodder, Mary. Here's more. Go get them. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but we both contributed to the the tweets from BPD's nuts today. <laughs> so, do you think yeah. that BPD's nuts is like in danger of getting banned, <laughs> or is that like no? You know how I know that because I just yesterday had found like three accounts that were impersonating me on Twitter with like my avatar, my name, my bio, and my cover image, and apparently that does not violate Twitter's policy. <laughs> So, yeah. So I feel like uh, we're pretty safe. I feel like we're we're okay. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yeah, it's happening to yeah. a lot of people in climate these days. But I, I also, um, yeah. it's also an homage to um, to the like the original roots of green trolling, which actually go back further than than me. They actually go back to the BP oil spill. Um, there were a lot of Twitter accounts impersonating um, BP 
at the time. Um, yes. And in the Gulf South, there was all sorts of like T-shirts and murals and people made their their distaste <laughs> with BP as a corporation known at the time of, of the oil spill. So it's kind of like paying homage to, to those folks who were doing this back in 2010. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about Earth Day, the celebration that already seems to have exhausted you, Mary, and it hasn't even happened yet. Um, so, Mary, why is Earth Day week a particularly tiresome week for people who work in the climate space? Um, because it's like the one time that everybody wants to make a big deal out of Earth Week. It's kind of it, it's exhausting for people in climate spaces just for the same reason Black History Month gets exhausting for, for a lot of Black people. It's like, hmm, you seem important this one day for an entire year. Um, and so... <laughs> it, it, it gets exhausting um, for those reasons. It gets exhausting for for me because um, Earth Day has always seemed like the whitest shit on the planet um, to me. Um, I've never, I, <laughs> your listeners can't see me. I'm black um, and I've never felt welcome <laughs> in Earth Day celebrations. It's always seemed like a whole bunch of people who don't have enough problems, um, who are super into whales. And don't get me wrong, I love a good whale, but like if I'm going <laughs> to... You know, (laughs) yeah, who doesn't love a whale? I love animals. Um, But I also recognize that, like, you know, there are other problems in the world. And so Earth Day just didn't seem like a bunch of people ready to fight. It always seemed like a bunch of people ready to, like, you know, go to a, you know— a mosh pit or fish concert. Something. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I didn't know what fish concert was until I was 35 years old. Because, yeah. Oh, wow. Amazing. What a, what a like, bl- blessed existence if you're a person who finds um, that sort of scene not fun. It would be nice to have to not to not know it exists. I don't want to alienate our listeners who might enjoy fish. I'm, I'm not one of them. Um <laughs> Amy, can you kind of expand on that idea? Like, why is Earth Day kind of, like, exhausting for people in the climate space? Well, the original intention of Earth Day was protest and getting mad at oil companies. You know, it was inspired by the civil rights movement and um, came together as a reaction to this massive oil spill in Santa Barbara in 1969, which before the Deepwater spill was the largest oil spill in U.S. history. And the whole point was to, like, get people out in the streets and push for real change. And in the wake of that, you did have the creation of the EPA and, you know, the passage of all of, like, the fundamental environmental legislation in the U.S. And then, you know, around about the 80s and 90s, it just became kind of like a hippy-dippy, you know, bullshit day that companies started to, like, push their their fake green products out, <laughs> you know? Um, mm-hmm. so, so, you know, what we are um, talking about this week is, like, let's take it back to those roots, you know? I would love to see people, like, actually um, organizing mass protests on Earth Day and, mm-hmm. um, and agitating for, like, real policy change, especially right now. I mean, the IPCC report just, like, once again <laughs> said... Okay, like we're in real trouble. And since our last report, you guys have gone the opposite direction. So we really mm. need to do some stuff. Um, and, you know, we're having all these conversations about 
oil and gas and war and and whatnot. It's it's a good time to to kind of do it right. Um, so yeah, for me, it's exhausting to just watch how it's become like a bullshit consumer holiday and not like a day of um, civil disobedience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mary, you uh, mentioned that you found Earth Day to be like the the whitest shit ever, which I think is really interesting considering how much of your work is sort of trying to refocus climate issues as justice issues. Like, do you feel like the successful cleaving of Earth Day into this, like, white holiday where people get, like, you know, gray whale stuffed animals or, you know, beanie babies of, of like, you know, b- baboons or whatever. Do you think that that has been a sort of, like, greatest trick the devil ever pulled kind of a moment to make it seem as though Earth Day is about, like, rescuing these faraway animals and not dealing with, like, immediate issues that impact people of color? Yeah, I th- I think what you're getting at is the separation of man and nature. Yep. Um, and yeah, I think that has been one of the biggest problems of the environmental movement. And it goes to like, so there's the climate movement, which is, you know, what we're largely talking about in this conversation and what, you know, the school strikes are involved in and AOC and Greta Thunberg. The climate movement is like what's hot in the street right now. And then there is the environmental movement, which preceded it, which Amy's talking about around Earth Day and around, like, all of that kind of sprung up in 1970. But what preceded that was the conservation movement. Um, And the conservation movement is, like, who-boy racist. Um, And that is when, (laughs) you know... Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. We're talking about, like, (laughs) Teddy Roosevelt and the establishment of national parks and all of those, all of that land being taken away from... Uh, Native Americans, right? Like a lot of the people who were big in the conservation movement were big slaveholders. A lot of them had ties to oil barons or were oil barons. A lot of them were authors of the Chinese Exclusion Act. So the conservation movement wanted to conserve land for white people um, and for the exploitation of it, for the profit of white people. So if we're going to talk about, you know, why the environmental movement is so white, we have to talk about where the environmental movement comes from. I don't mm-hmm. trace my roots to environmentalism or to to climate through that pathway. I trace it through the civil rights movement. Um, so, you know, if you see, you know, footage of civil rights activists integrating beaches, I would say that they were environmentalists. Um, when I mm-hmm. read about SNCC activists in Mississippi being concerned about these little caterpillars that they were finding on the feet of Uh, sharecropping children. I would say that they were environmentalists. So there's different paths to trace this through, um, Mm -hmm. but we cannot ignore the extremely racist roots of the environmental movement. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I found that to be so interesting. There was like a piece in, um, I think it was, was it the Atlantic last year that was like, give the national parks back to the Native Americans? Do you remember that cover story? Yeah. Yeah. and I think that people, um, that that was like something that a lot of people were talking about for a while. I wonder, um, I don't want to get too into the weeds here, but since we're talking about public lands, um, I wonder what your thoughts are on on that, Mary, on, on the kind of let's give, let, let's return national parks and public lands to the people from which they were taken. Yes, do it. 
I think we should give the land back. I think that indigenous yeah. people have proven themselves over centuries upon centuries to be better stewards of the land than anyone else. Um, and I think it's time to, one, give them their things, two, learn from them. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I find that to be super, I mean, I find that to be the way that public lands are used because um, I think like, you know, living out on the West Coast, there's all this like open space and there's so many more national parks out here than there, there are out East. You know, you go to a national park and it's, I think it's better than I remember it being when I was a kid in that you see more different kinds of people in national parks. But when I was a kid, I remember the experience of going to a national park to be even for someone from Wisconsin, white in a noteworthy way. Like you didn't see people of color really in national parks or like backcountry hiking and stuff. And, and I, I feel like ideally those spaces would be like this democratic lowercase D available space for everybody to enjoy, but it doesn't seem like that's how it's panned out. You know? Yeah. There's there's a lot of reasons for that. I don't feel comfortable in a lot of national yeah. parks. If you Google pictures of black people with trees, they'll be hanging from them because that's the, mm. the legacy. That's not to say that black people don't enjoy the outdoors. We do. I do. Um, but in national parks where things are, you know, named after people who have committed acts of genocide, I don't exactly feel comfortable. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I can see that. I can definitely see that. Um, let's talk a little bit about some of the problematic aspects of things that we associate with Earth Day, like reduce, reuse, recycle um, specifically. <sighs> and it has always kind of rubbed me the wrong way that the onus was on the consumer to somehow mm-hmm. fix things. Amy, I wonder what your thoughts are on um, reduce, reuse, recycle. And what can you tell us about the origins of uh, the consumer-focused um, conservation quote uh, aspect yeah. of this day. Yeah, that um that whole thing, the reduce, reuse, recycle thing, and the like, you know, don't litter and all of that comes from, you know, industries that didn't want the onus of that put on them. <laughs> you know, there's this famous ad from the early 70s that is unfortunately referred to as the crying Indian ad because it features a supposedly native man who's like canoeing through streams that are filled with trash. And then there's a close up on his face where he's crying. And it's like, we all have to play our part and, you know, don't litter and all of this. Um, He was an Italian actor, not Native American at all. So that's a whole problematic part of that ad but it was uh it was it was also paid for by um you know packaging companies and beverage companies and um and food companies who did not want the government to regulate packaging on their end and so therefore they were trying to turn it into an issue that consumers had to deal with and and that's continued up to this day there the stats on Recycling are ridiculous, um, particularly for plastic. I I, I just want to give a shout out to glass recycling, aluminum recycling, all great. Um, very, very like high, you know, material recovery in those realms. But the, the bulk of it is really pushed by um, plastic, which um, is also, of course, connected to oil, a thing people like to forget. Um, but, Mm-hmm. You know, plastics made from petroleum. Um, but yeah, it's it's really pushed as like, oh, well, we can just recycle it. So don't worry about buying more stuff. Um, and mm-hmm. also, it's on you to um, to do that. Never mind that 
there's no real system that's, that's set up to, to do recycling well in the U.S. or anywhere else in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, in the U.S., I think it's less than 9% of plastic is actually recycled. So, you know, we all feel good putting stuff in our, our blue bins or whatever, but it's bullshit. Um, the, the reality is, like, if you want to get rid of that stuff, you need to, like, you know, yes, buy less of it as consumers, but, like, it needs to be regulated. Plastic mm-hmm. is the escape hatch for the oil industry right now. Um, mm-hmm. As we're reducing use in transportation and buildings, they have really ramped up on selling um, various petrochemicals to make plastic with. Um, it's in all of their annual reports. It's like, don't worry, we're going to make all this money in plastic over here. And they're now pushing plastic recycling as a big thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. So, yeah. 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 You know, it's what's what's interesting about the way that Hot Take, your podcast, approaches discussion of environmental and climate issues is it confronts a lot of assumptions that people seem to have, like, become comfortable living with. And, um, like, Mary, uh, you wrote something in 2019 with uh, for Vox called, I work in the environmental movement. I don't care if you recycle. And, mm-hmm. like, <laughs> I wonder yeah. what's, what sort of response you get from people who are, like, you know, do-do-do, living their lives, thinking that what they're doing is helping. And what is what is the reaction that you get when you're like, actually, you're not helping? Like, actually, you're putting your energy in the wrong place. Oh, well, that's not at all what I meant with that article. Mm-hmm. So the headline is the headline that I, I just cannot get away from that headline. And that's the only part of the piece that I didn't write, folks. I do uh-huh. care if you recycle. <laughs> because if you recycle, what that signals is that you care. So the way that that article should be read is that I don't care if you recycle, you have a place in the environmental movement. So what mm-hmm. I was trying to get people away from is this guilt. So mm-hmm. the the main reason mm-hmm. a lot of people do not get into climate activism, even if they care about climate change, they you know understand that it's a serious threat, they don't get involved in it because they believe it's their fault. And mm-hmm. so they believe that if... I have a car if I don't recycle properly. And in a lot of places in the country, it is not possible to recycle. There is no recycling right. infrastructure. Right. Um, and yeah. so, you know, like when I go home to visit my mom in Mississippi, we can't recycle. Like where? I live in yeah. New Orleans. There is no way to recycle glass in New Orleans, even mm-hmm. though it's one of the most effective ways to recycle, right? Feel so like, good recycling. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> so a lot of people feel like if I have a carbon footprint, quote, unquote, at all, then I have no right to speak out about climate change. And so what I wanted to Mm -hmm. say with that article was that you don't need to be perfect to be Mm -hmm. part of this conversation. If you're recycling, you are helping. If you're Mm -hmm. eating less meat, you are helping. If you're reducing your food waste, you are helping. There are other ways for you to help, and you don't need to be perfect. You don't need to do it all, and you don't need to do any of this by yourself. Um, And so what I wanted to do with that article was reframe what we think of as individual action, right? Mm -hmm. So what we think of as individual action is just consumer action, but you are more than a consumer. Mm -hmm. You're a person. You're somebody's sister, somebody's brother, somebody's child, somebody's parent, somebody's friend, right? So like you're a citizen, (laughs) you vote. There's Mm -hmm. so many other ways that you can get involved in climate action. You don't have to do all of them and you don't have to do any of them alone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, I also wanted to to bring something up, Mary, that you said on the, the latest hot take, which 
you said, uh, I don't run on hope. I run on spite, which same, like absolutely, <laughs> absolutely yeah. same, absolutely same. I was like, this is, this is my vibe, like a hundred percent vibes. Yeah. Um, so it, here's my question for both of you. And I'm not asking it from like a gotcha perspective. I genuinely am like, this is a huge question for me too. Like, Okay, so we have the world that we have right now, and it, we are in a point of desperation where we need to have been doing something five years ago that we weren't yeah. doing. Like, it is more desperate now than it's ever been. And so we have the potential allies that we have. We have the potential enemies that we have. Like, how do you work alongside people who have been complicit in the past in getting us into this mess when you have, like, built up anger and resentment toward them, which, I, you know, which Mary, as someone who works in the climate justice space, I'm sure that you have Amy as someone who's reported on this deeply. I'm sure you have as well. Like, how do we get past the knowledge that this was allowed to happen because of inaction alongside mm -hmm. of destructive action? How do, how do we get past that? Or do we just like burn it all down, build our own things? Do we have time to burn it all down? Like, well, burning it all down, <laughs> you know, like I, it seems like that's a huge question, but I just would love to hear both of you speak to that. You want to go first? You want to go? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it depends on, I, I think there's different approaches for different levels of complicity. So the okay. oil companies, yeah, absolutely the living hell not. Burn them down. Try them at the Hague. You know, I am a budding prison abolitionist, but I'll allow a few gulags for these people. Um, and so <laughs> with them, absolutely not. Fuck them. And I'm talking specifically yeah. about the leadership. I'm talking about the CEOs. I'm not talking about, like, the oil rig workers. Um, mm -hmm. That's different. Right. Um, mm -hmm. They are not our—I don't— believe they're anybody's enemy. Um, and also, those jobs are hard. Those jobs actually suck. Like Those people are yeah. victims of the fossil fuel yeah. industry, too. Um, if we're talking about the Republican Party, yeah, burn it down. If we're talking about, um, you know, Joe Biden, that was a hard pillow to swallow for the climate movement. And I got a lot of questions for that guy. Um, and I'm mm -hmm. finding it really difficult to find a way to, to work with him, to work with Joe Manchin, to work with so many of these other folks who are part of this gerontocracy that locked us into this, into this reality. So yeah, yeah. that's my initial thought. Okay. Amy, what do you think? I agree with gulags for oil CEOs. Um, I, for a long time. <laughs> oh man. I love the like gulag um, exception. Like I feel the same way about prison, nobody should go except some very specific people. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, yeah. Very I would, specific. I would like them to like be in a gulag and I would like a, a work program for them that requires them to do like organic farming and like work on windmills. <laughs> oh <laughs> no, I want them to kick rocks, <laughs> literally. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, for a really long time, actually, I when I first started reporting on climate stuff, this is like 20 years ago, and I was very much in the mindset of like, you know, all hands on deck. We need to work with the oil companies and we need to like encourage them to embrace alternative energy and all of this stuff. And the more that I learned about how they have operated over the years, the more I was like, you know what? They're not just 
they're not just like doing what they're incentivized to do in the system. They architected that system. Like they had a a massive hand in actually shaping the choices that all of us have, including them. So, you know, I think they bear a higher level of, of responsibility. And I also don't think, like, actually really up until fairly recently, I still thought, well, maybe we, you know, um, maybe they can transition into being alternative energy companies. And, you know, there are a lot of people with engineering experience at these companies and whatever. But I don't know. I'm at this point now where I'm like, I just don't think that these are the people that can be trusted to be in charge of, Right. The energy transition, you know. Right. And and as as far as like other types of people who have been complicit, I I have um actually more empathy than people might suspect for for lots of yes, even Mary. Um for lots of You're very of empathetic. People. What because the hell are you talking about? <laughs> yes. Yes, it's true. Oh, this is the part of the podcast where we all fight about how much we like each other. That's what happens when there's like a woman hosted female space podcast. It's like, no, yes. you're great. No, you go ahead. No, you, no, you are. <laughs> you're petty, but you are empathetic. I am. I like I, I feel like, look, a lot of people have grown like I so I mean the thing that I want to make clear too is that like the oil companies haven't just shaped the energy industry. They have like they're the architects of like so many um identity politics around like what it means to be a patriotic American. They like almost single-handedly shaped how we think of economics. Um, they Like, they infiltrated schools in the 1950s. Like, they've been at this for a very, very long time, right. way before climate change became an issue. So, like, it's totally, to me, like, as someone who spends a lot of time in archives and looking at, like, history and whatever, I'm like, yeah, no shit this happened with climate because, like, those guys fucking owned us for 50 years before that, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I have a lot of em empathy. I think people, you know, have come up in the the life they've come up in and they've been taught a certain way and they have been, you know, encouraged to behave a certain way and they need to be re-educated. And that that's kind of what I see as like one of the that's the part of climate work that I'm focused on, because it's like, well, this is what I can do. Like, I suck at recycling, actually, but <laughs> I'm pretty good at this part. Right. Um, so, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, confrontation is always uncomfortable, especially when it comes to like urgent confrontation, like you're like confronting people and getting people to confront things that they think are helping or they think are the right thing to do. It's like it's yeah. an uncomfortable confrontation and to encourage it on mass is like a it's a it's a brave undertaking. And I appreciate what you two do, um, because I am one of those people that cry, <laughs> cries during confrontations. So oh, I, uh, I hate it. I hate yeah, it. I hate yeah, it so much. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so yeah, it's, we have to end the conversation here, but I want you two to come back anytime you want. This is, we could have yeah. kept going for hours. Um, so basically what you're saying is that the fox cannot be counted on to take care of the hens within the hen house. Correct. Yeah. Fuck the fox. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we are going to get to what we are feeling petty about this week.
And welcome back to the show. We are almost done, but not quite. We are going to talk about what we're feeling petty about this week with the ladies from Hot Take. Mary, do you want to go first? What are you feeling petty about this week? You know, I I, I don't... Um... I don't know if this is petty or just like a really deep visceral feeling. So I just learned how to drive. Um, last Congrats. year I moved. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, last year I moved from New York City, where I lived for my entire adult life, um, back to the South. I moved to New Orleans. And um, to do that, kind of need to learn how to drive. That's why I stayed in New York for so long, um, because I didn't know how to drive. And it seemed really scary to learn, because once you, like, pass the age of 25 and you have your frontal lobe in, it's kind of like, oh, shit, one wrong move and everybody could die. So I I finally, like, (laughs) bit the bullet. This time last year, I was taking driving lessons, terrified out of my mind. And, you know, I'm doing okay now. I just, this past weekend, drove the... Uh, this four and a half hour drive to see my mom. Um, it should be two and a half hours, but I'm still a punk and I'm scared of the interstate. <laughs> but anyway, the thing I feel petty about is impatient drivers. Okay? Because so many times people are like, learn how to drive. It's like, what the fuck do you think I'm trying to do? There's no way to learn how to drive without driving. So I don't know. What do you want me to do? Like go get on a road where there's nobody else on it because I don't know where that fucking road is. Okay, so like have a little bit of patience. Oh, I took too long to make the turn. Oh, no, you're going to be exactly 35 seconds late. Maybe you should have left the fucking house early because you're not the only car on the road. Also, you don't know what's going on in my car. I could be having a stroke. I could have just found out some horrible news. I could have just got fired. I could be crazy. You don't know what's going on in this car. So maybe you should just go the hell around. Just the other day, somebody was blowing their horn at me when they could have gone around because guess what? Nobody was in the other guy damn lane so maybe i'm not petty maybe i'm angry but yeah maybe just have a little bit of compassion for the other people on the road okay we're all dealing with a lot it's a pandemic there's a war going on you don't know what's happening <laughs> maybe you just true. oh my gosh do you watch the show i think you should leave on netflix <laughs> yes you yes. know the sketch like, yes. no i don't know how to fucking drive <laughs> i no. actually had that moment i had that moment once i was trying to park And parking in a parking lot is still kind of beyond me, especially if it's a tight little spot. And I got stuck on a curb and I couldn't get off. I was there for like five minutes. And then this lady came by and she's like approaching my car very slowly and giving me this very concerned look. And she looked me in the eye and said, are you drunk? I said, no, ma'am, I'm just stupid. (laughs) I just, I don't know how to get out of this curb. Oh man. Oh my goodness. Um, well, so you know good. what? Learning learning new things is scary and driving is I was like 10 years I didn't drive for 10 years cuz I lived in Chicago and then I moved to New York where I didn't have to drive. I was like grew up in the country learned on a stick shift car like that and a truck, you know, and um yeah. didn't drive for 10 years when I started driving again in Los Angeles, very scary. So I have a lot of lot of empathy. Oh yeah. My I feel petty this week is also about cars. There are certain things on cars that I am realizing had absolutely no input from women whatsoever. The heaviness of car doors. Why are they that heavy? They, they don't need to be that heavy. Why are they slamming my, I live in like a, I live in LA and there's parts that are very hilly. And sometimes you're like parked uphill and you try to open your door and lean over and grab something and your door will slam right on your leg. That the fucking hurts. Second thing, why do they close so loud? 
Why did they mm. cl- Sometimes I have a baby sleeping in the backseat of my car and I want to oh close my, my Why do they close so loud? They should have had one mm-hmm. one single mm-hmm. person who has ever been responsible for taking care of another human being in on that design meeting being like, "You know what? We got to do something about how loudly these car doors close." Because clearly nobody on that entire team was like, "I have a flag." Uh, what if anybody driving a car has a child? Like no, like literally nobody stood up and was like, wait a minute, like, can we make the doors close more quietly? Can we make them less heavy and less likely to like slam on woman legs or little people legs or anyway. So that's, that's what I feel petty about. Um, Amy, Amy, what are you feeling petty about this week? This is perfect because I have a, a mom rant um, Great. that I'm feeling petty about, which is what, what I've been calling, like, the tyranny of postpartum body positivity. I oh. do not like that every time I complain about the fact that, like, I can no longer cough without peeing, someone feels compelled to tell me, but it's worth it, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you! Oh, my God. How old is yours? Um, not a baby at all. My youngest is six. <laughs> oh my gosh! <sighs> but for well. years, for just today, I was just just this morning. I was like, I was uh, laughing at, on the phone with my mother, and I was like, Oh no, I just peed. I have to go. <laughs> and, and, and she was, and she said that, like, yeah, but you know, that's just the price we pay. Ah, why? No, uh, it's a, it's a no. shitty price. It's a shit. Yeah, like a that is price. like a way in which having a kid can be a real fucking ripoff. It's like, okay, like, yeah. it's like you go to pay for the kid with your body, and it's like, oh yeah, yeah. this is also like an unexpected. Oh, you've got the piss tax. Now you're gonna just like yeah. pi- now you're gonna piss forever, and you're like, and wait also, a minute, and also. Yeah, you must be nice about it and, like, you know, take mm. it on the chin. Everything about yeah. motherhood in, is in general yeah. in this country is just like, well, that's what the job is. And Go if you complain yourself. about it, it's like people want other people should, you know, you're lucky. Uh, you know, other yeah. people will do anything to have a kid. The toxic positivity, mm-hmm. oh, my God. It's it's yeah. horrible. I also yeah. hate you. Let's retire. You got this mama as a thing that we oh! I do not want. got this. And you you and I are not on a, you cannot call me mama. My child can call me mama. And that is it. <laughs> like, you got this, mama. Yes. It's so cringy. So cringy to me. Yes. Anyway. Whew, yes. Amy, let's talk oh. more about this because I've got, got feelings, <laughs> got thoughts, got emotions. Um, I'm just like, but isn't labor enough? <laughs> yes, you carry up for nine months, dog. Like, that seems like enough. Your feet are all swelling. Yeah. I, yeah, you got cankles. Seems like paid price enough. I don't yeah. Know. yeah. That's, it's a lot. Yeah. It's, a, it's a steep price. Um, anyway, Mary and Amy... We can listen to you on Hot Take, which comes out what day? Friday. Friday. On Earth Day. (laughs) Well, happy Earth Day. I hope both of you celebrate with an Earth Day cake. And by Earth Day cake, I mean a cake that you eat by yourselves that nobody can interfere with you eating. (laughs) A stress cake, a stress beignet if you're in New Orleans, Uh, whatever sort of stress dessert (laughs) you need to eat. Uh, Thank you to (laughs) Kim Kelly for stopping by and talking about the history of labor. Thank you to Mallory McMorrow for talking to us about getting mad on the floor of the Michigan State Senate and it being awesome. And a message to Alyssa Mastromonaco, my ride or die, who's not here this week. Uh, Thankfully, she's just sick. 
She will be back next week. Alyssa, get well soon. Feel better. And thanks to all of you, the listeners. There will be more hysteria for you next week. I am from another planet. This nation is our Janet. But these girls got a fan it. Y2K email and scan it. Don't take no for an Hysteria is a Crooked Media production. Caroline Reston is our producer. Our executive producer is me, Aaron Ryan. Alyssa Mastromonaco is our co-producer, and Brian Semmel is our associate producer. Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis are the sound engineers, and our editor is Sarah Gibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. Thank you to our digital team, Nar Melkonian, Mia Kelman, Milo Kim, and Matt DeGroote.